Thank you, Nick, and our worship team for leading us beautifully this morning. We're going to dismiss our children three years through third grade this morning, and you can send them up here to the front where our kids are already gathering. They're going to go downstairs and have a wonderful time uh, in kids' church. If you're standing here with me, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're walking verse by verse through this great book. Uh, all this year we've been in this book and, and really just learning how to do things, how to live our lives, how to lead our church and to be the people of God and do everything God's way as opposed to doing things our own way, which we are prone to do as sinful human beings. We are prone to, to uh, approach life, to approach the things of life in our own perspective, in our own power, in our own abilities, and for our own purpose. And yet God calls us to always do things for His glory and in His plan. And so that's what we're learning as we walk here through the book of Nehemiah, looking at the Jews coming back from exile. I want to share a story with you, a, bi- a biblical story. It's probably going to be very um, reminiscent to most of you in here, but if you remember the story of Joseph in the latter chapters of the book of Genesis, Joseph there in those chapters, one particular morning, woke up in the filth and the stench of the Egyptian prison that he had woke up in for many mornings, for perhaps even years he had woken up in, these, in this prison, smelling the awful stench that comes with being in an Egyptian prison. But the difference on this particular day as he awoke and saw the sunrise with that was the fact that two of his fellow inmates were deeply troubled over a dream that they had both had during the night. You see, Pharaoh had been angry with both the cupbearer and the chief baker, and he had placed them in prison uh, weeks, if not months, earlier. And Joseph here is the man of God. He's the one who worships Yahweh, the God of Israel. We know who Joseph is. He's the son of Jacob. He's the grandson of Isaac. He's the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of God's people. God had visited Joseph when he was a young man there as a teenage boy. He had visited him in dreams and told him that he would be raised up to a place of prominence, to a place of authority in his life. And yet those dreams have yet to come true in the story of Joseph. In fact, the very opposite had happened to Joseph. His brothers jealously sold him into slavery. And Joseph, being sold into slavery, landed in Egypt. And there on the slave trading box, he was purchased by Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He was brought into Potiphar's house, but even there, he began to prosper. Even there in Potiphar's house, he was placed in charge of everything that Potiphar had. And everything seemed to be ticking up in the life of Joseph until the day that he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was sent to prison, and in prison he found, again, favor Uh, from God. He found favor with the warden, was given authority over all the prisoners. And on this particular morning, you see, he awakes to the stench of the prison. He found these two inmates troubled over their dreams, and Joseph sought to help them out. They told him their dreams, and he gave them an interpretation of those dreams. The cupbearer would be restored to his position in service of Pharaoh, but his dream that he interpreted for the chief baker was that the baker would be executed. Both of those dreams, we know, became a reality. The cupbearer was restored. The chief baker was executed. And Joseph made one request of the cupbearer. When you go back to Pharaoh, remember me. 
We know the story. The cub bear goes back to the Pharaoh and he was forgotten. He forgot Joseph for the next two years. Can you imagine being Joseph? You've, you've served the Lord. You've done what you thought was the right thing to do. You've asked that someone that you've helped to, to remember you as he goes back to the hand and to the side of Pharaoh. And yet for two whole years, you're forgotten. Surely the cupbearer remembered Joseph. Surely the cupbearer was the friend of Joseph, and he knew that Joseph was his, his friend. Surely as he came back to the palace, he remembered that guy back in the prison, and yet for two whole years, nothing happens. Surely he intended to say something to Pharaoh about Joseph, but there just never seemed to be the right time to do so. And so days passed into months, months began to pass into years, and little by little the cupbearer forgot all about this man who had helped him in prison. And Joseph had become nothing more than a stranger to the cupbearer. Forgetfulness is something that's very daunting. I, I don't know about you, but we, I struggle with forgetfulness from time to time. Sometimes I will meet a person, I really intend to remember their name. I'm doing everything I possibly can to remember their name, and yet I walk away and I have no idea who I just talked to. Has that ever happened to you guys? Forgetfulness is a daunting thing. C.S. Lewis, after the death of his wife, wrote of the despair and the spiritual twilight that he experienced in that whole, whole situation. Part of the agony for Lewis was the fact that he, he felt... Uh, the fading from his memory of her appearance. He, he didn't just know their memory was fading. He felt the, 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 the thing of the, the, the fact that her appearance was fading. He began to forget what she looked like. He couldn't re- quite recall her appearance. He couldn't even re- quite recall her voice. And I, I kind of I agree with this. I kind of see this even in my own life. I mean, my dad, I've talked about my dad in recent weeks. I vaguely remember what his voice sounded like. It's been 25 years this September. And so I can, I can sympathize with C.S. Lewis in the anguish he felt over the passing of his wife. He felt all of this as a sense of betrayal. He felt all of this as deep anguish in his soul because in some ways she was becoming nothing more than a stranger to him because he was forgetting what she looked like. You see, when we forget... We live as strangers. When I meet someone, as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, and, and I seek to remember their, mace, I, their face, I want to remember their name, I want to remember who they are, and I walk away, and I'm nothing more than a stranger to them. Why is this? Because I've forgotten who they are. I forgot their name. I forgot things about them. Here's a statement I want you to see. Forgetfulness leads to estrangement, but remembrance leads to relationship. You see, if I forget your name, we're still strangers. But if I remember who you are, there's some sort of relationship that can be further developed and built. Forgetfulness is dangerous. Remembrance is good, and it leads to greater and more deeper relationships in our life. And all throughout the Bible as we read it, we see the dangers of man's forgetfulness, but we also see the beauty and we see the blessings that come from remembering. And this morning... As we move here through the chapter, this chapter in in Nehemiah, uh, we're going to see that the Jews in Jerusalem determined to remember. And that's what I want to speak to this morning. I want to call us to remember the things of God. Look with me in verse 1. Nehemiah tells us that now on the 24th day of this month, that is the seventh month of the year, The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. 
Here in this verse, as he opens up this chapter, we see here and we learn that the people of God remembered who they are. The first day of the month, as we've been walking through the last couple chapters, we saw was a holy convocation. It was a feast of trumpets. It was a big deal there at the beginning of chapter 8. The tenth day of the month was the day of atonement. It was the day where their sins would be atoned for by the blood of the Lamb. And then beginning... On the 15th day of the same month, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Booths that we talked about this past Sunday. As they, as they gathered together in huts, so they literally camped outside of their homes, remembering all the things that God did for them as he brought them through the Promised Land. So for seven days, they celebrate this food, this, this Feast of Booths. And then on the eighth day, following this Feast of Booths, was a solemn ascend me. And that brings us to where we are here in the beginning of chapter 9, the 24th day. This day that we're going to read about here was not a day dedicated or, or dictated, I should say, by the law. It seems to, to have been a grassroots movement that was directed by the Levites. So Nehemiah here tells us that the people of Israel, they fasted and they humbled themselves before God. What they're doing is acknowledging their dependence on God and their humiliation for their sin. They're owning the sinfulness in their life. They recognized who they are by seeing themselves as sinners in need of grace. Let's continue reading verse 2. And the Israelites separated, the, separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Here we see them remembering not only who they are, but whose they are. They are God's people. They're separating themselves from worldly things in order to be separated to their God because they were God's redeemed people. Let's continue reading verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. The stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kananai. I have problems pronouncing that guy's name. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. What do we see the Jews here doing? They're remembering the priority of worship. They're remembering the priority of worship. We've seen him, we've seen them, how they've gathered around the word of God. On the first day of the month, they gather around the Word of God, and they're reading from it, and it's being interpreted, preached to them, and it quickly began to pierce their hearts. It's revealing their sins, and they begin to weep, if you remember, in chapter 8. See, the centrality of God's Word led to confession and praise. They were remembering the priority of worship in their lives. Continue to read with me in verse 6. Nehemiah says, you are the Lord. The Levites are saying, you are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worship you. They're remembering here the sovereignty of God. Who is God? 
to us. Who is God to Israel here? They're remembering that God is a sovereign God. They remember that God is not one among many, and He's not the best among the candidates. God alone is sovereign. God alone stands alone. He is the one and only. He alone, they're declaring, is the creator of all that there is. Nothing exists outside His expressed desire for it to exist, and nothing can continue without His provision. That's what they're declaring here. They remember the sovereignty of God in their lives. Verse 7, we see them further uh, laying their hearts before the Lord as they say, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. They remember the righteousness of God as they're declaring this before the Lord. See, the Jews remember that God exhibits his magnificence, not only in the wonder of his creation and in the power of his rule, but also in his desire to form a relationship with mankind. It is God who chose Abraham. It's God who pursued Abraham. It's God who worked in the life of Abraham to create a people for himself. See, what God did was he shook hands with a nomad and made a covenant with him to give him descendants in the land of the Canaanites. The Jews inherited this land not because of anything that they had done. In fact, we're going to see as they begin to confess their sin that they've done everything possible to be dis, uh, disallowed to be in the land. And yet God did this because he is righteous. He did this because he is dependable. They remembered the righteous hand of God. Uh, I'm reminded of Isaiah 41.10 that tells us that we, Isaiah is declaring there, that we are upheld by his righteous right Hand. There's been many days in my own life where I've reached back and I've claimed that promise that God alone is leading in my life. God alone is leading in our church. They remember the righteousness of God. We see in verse 9, them further laying their hearts before the Lord. And they say, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Here we see Nehemiah and the Levites declaring that the the salvation of God. They are remembering the salvation of God. You see, God is not aloof from his creation. This morning, you may think, there, at least there may be uh, someone sitting here this morning and thinks, God's just kind of out to lunch on my life. God is just out to lunch. He's not, he's not, uh, 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 he's not knowledgeable of what's going on. He doesn't know what's going on. Maybe he doesn't even care what's going on. That may be what you're feeling, but the people here are declaring that God is not aloof in your life. In fact, we, if you're reading with us chronologically through the Bible, this past week we read in 2 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah stands before the prophets of Baal and he, he taunts them as they've, you know, they've sacrificed this ox, they've built the altar there, and they're calling upon Baal to do what Baal's supposed to do, to answer by fire. And, and, and Elijah begins to taunt them, saying, maybe your God's out to lunch. Maybe he's out in the outhouse. Maybe he's on a long journey. Maybe he's asleep. And then he calls upon the God of Israel, and what does he do? He answers by fire, licks up all the water around. God 
is the God of salvation. He's not aloof. He observes. He watches our lives. You see, the Jews remembered that God sees the plight of His people, and He's always working to save them. Let's continue to reading in verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them and from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the day did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Can you imagine not having to visit the shoe store for 40 years? What a glorious thing that would have been. One of the two hardest things for me to purchase for myself, we were shopping a little bit yesterday, are shoes and a hat. I've been trying to buy a hat for months. And I sort of found one yesterday, one that just, it was good enough. It wasn't what I wanted, but it was good enough. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." These Levites, the people of God here, are remembering the provision of God, even despite the sin of the people of God. You see, God is the initiator who approaches man to give everything that is needed. And the Jews remembered that the Lord is the one who made provision for their spiritual life. He's the one who made provision for their social life. He's the one who made provision even for their political life. And he is the one who provided for them in their physical lives. God is the one who provides. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies." But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. And yet, they, and yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet 
they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, a person, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them about by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. If you've been with us for any amount of time and you walk with us through the book of Judges, you see the pattern that the Levites here are laying out. This is one of the most thorough teachings of the Old Testament, to understand the, the history of the early people of God. And so the Jews here remembered the pattern of sin in their lives. They acknowledged the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of their sin and rebellion. Let's finish the chapter. Now, therefore, verse 32, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. That is when Jew, the, the ten northern tribes were taken out of the land. Verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes... Our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins." They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm commitment or a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This last passage, we see that they remembered the grace of God. The Jews remember, remember that it was their God who was great, mighty. He is, he is the one who is, keeps his covenant of love. Despite their sin, despite the fact that they dared to place their hope in someone else, God is the one who graciously comes to them and forgives their sin and desires to heal their land. Forgetfulness on the part of Israel is what estranged them from God. It's what caused them to have this separation between the God who desires to be in relationship with them and them as the God's people. See, they had forsook the Lord and they had forgotten God's word. They literally had become everything that God warned them through Moses in Deuteronomy. We could read there in chapters 9, 6, uh, uh, all the way to the end of the book, we would see how God spoke through Moses and warned them, if you do this, if you follow my commandments, if you believe me, then blessings will come to you. But if you forsake me, if you forget my word, if you walk away from my word, cursing will come upon your life. They became the fulfillment of all of that. And as a result, they lived as strangers to God while their sins piled up, while their sins continued to enclose upon them. Have you ever noticed in your life how quickly things accumulate, right? Laundry, laundry is always accumulating. I don't even do most of the laundry in our life, in our, in our home, but it's always accumulating. It's like you do a load and there's two or three loads. It's, still, it's like it just generates more laundry. 
Same with dishes. You, you, you put all the dishes in the dishwasher, you got all the kitchen cleaned, and all of a sudden it's time for another meal, and the kitchen's dirty again. They're just piling up, and as you add kids in the house, that adds to the dishes. Things are always piling up, constantly taking the trash out, constantly sweeping the floor. You're constantly clearing out the clutter. I mean, it seems like every day I turn around and there's more things on the desk in my office. Things are just always piling up around us. The same is true for our transgressions. They are ever accumulating. They are ever piling up around you. Imagine it this morning. Imagine your sin and your transgression as this massive Big as the amount of time you've spent in this life. Dense as the frequency of your thoughts. Imagine how big and immense your sins are. And what you have is a massive, dense weight of guilt hanging over your head. Threatening to crush you at any moment. And the only thing staying it is the mercy of God. The only thing staying the crushing power of the sin in your life is the mercy of God. The Jews here remembered their God. And as they stood on the first day of the month and heard from the word of God, their hearts were broken over their sin. If we go back to chapter 8, we see that. They remembered that their God was holy, that their God was righteous, that their God was true. And they remembered that it was not God who walked away, but it was they and their ancestors who walked away from God and his word. It's they who forgot the covenant. They remember that God is loving and compassionate. They remember that God is long-suffering toward them. They remember that they were prone to wonder and to, and to move into idolatrous behavior. They remember that God's goodness and his desire is to forgive and to redeem. They remember that their waywardness, as great as it is, is always overshadowed by the goodness of God. And this morning we sat here, many of us, in this room. The weight of our sin is bearing down upon us and we're thinking, how could God ever forgive me? How could God ever love me? How could God ever take this burden from my life? And yet his goodness is greater than your sin. His grace is greater than your sin. And the Jews are remembering this as they're reflecting upon their history, as they're reflecting upon the word of God that's being read to them and they're calling themselves back to the Lord. And so it's here in this beautiful scene of confession and repentance and redemption that I want to share with you three things that we need to remember when confronted with our sin. Quickly, we need to remember to stand on the mercy of God. We need to remember to stand on the mercy of God. I mentioned Deuteronomy 4 earlier. There in verse 31, it says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. What God is telling the Jews there through Moses is that you may be walking away from me, but I'm never going anywhere. I'm going to be there with you. My mercy will ever be present in your life. You see, God is good, and he wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And over and over in the Bible, we see the testimony of God, that he is a merciful God, that he is a good God. And no matter how great your sin may be, the Bible says that God desires to forgive it. He does. He's merciful. And when you feel the weight of your guilt and the weight of your shame, when you feel the weight of your mistakes, when you feel the sting of conviction, you need to remember God and that he is a merciful God. The condemnation that you feel, you need to understand this morning that it's God's good gift to you to call you back to him, to draw you back to him. It opens up your eyes to the reality of the sin in your life and how it has estranged you from God. 
That's why the Lord told the people of God in Deuteronomy and, and other places in the Pentateuch that if you walk away from me, this is what I'm going to do. But the whole purpose is not just to, to chastise them and to destroy them. It was to always bring them back to God. We see that in the book of Judges, this cycle of sin that's going on there as they walk away from God and he plunges them into uh, uh, slavery of another nation. They begin to cry out to God and he comes and delivers them. It's all to draw them back to himself. It's the mercy of God. And so stand this morning on the mercy of God. Believe that his mercies are new every morning. Believe that he loves you. Believe that God desires to be in relationship with you. Yes, your sin is great, but his grace is even greater. Though Israel had forsaken God in the wilderness and even made it an idol to replace him, what does the Bible tell us here in chapter 9? That God did not walk away from them, verse 19. So remember to stand on the mercy of God. Second thing, remember to own your sin. These Jews discovered what Job and Isaiah had discovered. A personal encounter with God creates a more alert sensitivity to our sin. You see, when we come close to the Lord, it begins to show and highlight the sinfulness of our lives. God's holiness exposes our impurity. His generosity censures our greed. His faithfulness challenges our disloyalty. And His love begins to unmask our self-centeredness. They were broken. These Jews were broken over their sin. And their brokenness and conviction led to this confession to the Lord. A couple things about this confession I want you to see here. First of all, the confession was sincere. We see in verse 1 that it's accompanied with fasting, sackcloth, dirt on their heads, uh, separation from worldly people in verse 2. Now, these are acts that we might not do this today, right? We, we, I've never seen anybody in church come in with sackcloth. If you want to, that's fine. We're very uh, casual, come as you will type church. Uh, you can wear a suit, you can wear shorts, you can wear sackcloth. That's, that's, that's okay. Now, no shoes, no shirt. We may have a little issue with that just because modesty issues. But other than that, come in sackcloth. We don't dress like this. But, so what does it speak? It speaks of sincerity. See, what they're doing is they're behaving and dressing as grief-stricken mourners, agonizing over their transgressions. They're acting like they're going to a funeral. Why? Because they realize that their sin is killing them. Their sin is killing them. And so their confession was sincere. Our confession, as we remember our own sin, needs to be sincere. Their confession was also specific. They didn't hide behind vague phrases and hollow language. They didn't do any of that. No, what they're doing is itemizing their sin. We read a lot of verses this morning, and I debated with myself this week. Should we read it? Should we not read it? I think we should read it because you need to hear the story. The way this is written, it's hard for me just to highlight a couple things. You need to hear the story. And in this story, what do we see? An itemized list of sins. God, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. Their confession of sin was very specific. All throughout their history, they had been arrogant toward God, so they confessed that. They were disobedient and forgetful, so they confessed that. They were rebellious people, so they're confessing that. They had cast God aside as they even created an idol in the fire. They're confessing that. They had rejected God's word. They had killed his messengers. They had not learned from the pattern of their sin in their lives. And so they're confessing all of these things very specifically to the Lord. Their confessions were specific sins that Israel had committed against God in the past. But these Jews understood something that we need to understand. They also illustrated the sinful tendencies of their own life. 
We're reading here of men and women who live post-exile. They're confessing sins of, of, of the time when Moses was leading the people through the wilderness. Why would they confess sins of hundreds of years past? It's because the same cycle of sin was present in their own life. So as they're confessing the sins of their fathers, they're also confessing their own sins as well. So those sins had not been left in the distant history. They were passed on to every subsequent generation. This legacy of disobedience and disloyalty had been passed down from one generation to the next generation. And for this reason, the Jews specifically confessing these sins. They recognize that in confession, listen to this, the universality of sin should never obscure the particularity of the offenses. In other words, they're saying, what, what this is teaching us is this. We don't come before the Lord and say, God, I've sinned. No, we say, God, I've sinned in this way. I've sinned in this. I've sinned by saying this, doing this, thinking this, walking away in this way. It, our confession of sin needs to be specific. Why? Well, Georgia Harkness tells us this. A, George, a, a general confession is good, but in it lurks the danger of acknowledging and bewailing humanity's sins and not your own. So we can say, we have sinned, and yet we're not really speaking of our own self. And so they're not just confessing, our fathers have sinned. They're saying, no, we've all sinned. I've sinned in this way. It is sincere. It is specific. We need to own our sin. Third thing I want us to remember is this. Remember to rest in the grace of God. I love the latter part of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Remember to rest in the grace of God. See, as you remember that God has a proven track record of being merciful towards sinners, and, and as you own your sin by confessing it and forsaking it specifically, you need to rest in His grace you need to rest in the unmerited favor of Almighty God. See, mercy is you receiving or not receiving what you deserve. That's the judgment of God. It's you not receiving the punishment for that sin. Grace is you receiving what you do not deserve, forgiveness and restoration. Solomon asked God to be gracious. You remember, I think we read this not long ago in our readings in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7. Solomon, the son of David, he was, as he was dedicating the temple there, if I can find the chapter, I will read it to you. Second Samuel chapter 6, as Solomon is dedicating the temple. He prays to the Lord and in chapter 6 begins to ask God certain things and then the Lord answers him in, in chapter 7. And so let me read from you chapter 6 verse 36 through 39. He says, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all of their mind and with all of their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward this land which you have given to their fathers, a city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. See, Solomon is asking the Lord to do this as he dedicates the temple. He says, God, if your people walk away from you in sin, and they realize that sin because they've been sold into slavery, and they come walking back to you, 
God, hear them. Hear their cry and forgive their sin. And then the Lord answers Solomon in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. God says to Solomon, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among the people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what God is saying. And so the people of God, as they're crying out and confessing their sin, they're standing on the mercy of God. As they own their sin, they're resting in the grace of God because God's already declared, if you will call on my name, I will hear. If you will confess your sin, I will forgive. If you return to me, I will return to you. The reality is God has never left us to begin with. God's not obligated to forgive your sin today, but he does so. It doesn't even make sense for him to forgive our sin, but he does so. You see, he promises to forgive our sin. He even promises to do more than forgive our sin. Here in this verse, chapter 7, verse 14, God promises to heal our brokenness. He, be, he promises to bring our lives back together. He promises to take the, the mess that sin has created and to put all things back to good and to new. This is why we rest in the glorious grace of God. All throughout the Bible we see a recurring theme. It's not just Old Testament. It's New Testament as well. We see this recurring theme being played out, this flight from God. Running alongside that theme, though, is another theme. You see, as we run from God, there's a theme in Scripture is that, run, that God is running with us. He's running toward us. We might call him the hound of heaven. I love to hunt with hounds. I love to rabbit hunt. There's nothing better than the sound of a pack of beagles on a rabbit track. And every time I hear that, that wonderful sound of beagles tracking rabbits, I just think of the Lord. I know that's a weird illustration, but I'm a warped hunter, and that's the way I think. I love the sound of a rabbit or a, a hound on a rabbit track. And so that's this morning is what God is doing to you. As you are in your sin, running from the Lord, he, as a hound of heaven, is chasing after you, chasing you down, desiring to be in relationship with you, desiring to forgive your sin, desiring to heal the brokenness in your life, desiring to restore you to all that God created you to be. Israel here testifies to this ever-pursuing hound of heaven who is chasing after them. And this morning, I want you to look back over your life, and I guarantee you this, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, you will detect how God has been chasing you every step of the way. This morning, even if you're not in relationship with Jesus, I think you can look back over your life. Maybe it's even now that this is becoming most clear that you can see that God is pursuing you in his grace. The Bible tells us that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, stretched himself out on the cross the Bible tells us that he took the weight of our ever-accumulating sin upon himself and in his mercy endured the wrath and the shame that comes from your sin. And today the Bible tells us that if we will remember God, if we will own our sin, if we will look to him like the Jews did, then we too can experience the glorious grace of forgiveness. We can experience the glorious grace of a relationship with the God who made you for himself. We need to remember this morning. We need to remember God and what he does for us and ultimately what he has done for us on the cross. Do you remember this morning? Do you remember the sin in your life that's separating you, the sin that's causing devastation? Are you remembering that? And in, with that, is it coupled, or are, are you coupling it with the grace and the forgiveness of Almighty God? I pray that you are. I pray this morning is that, that the story, of the, the, the testimony of your life is that you will call upon the Lord and like the Jews here, Stand on his mercy, 
own your sin, and rest in his grace. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this story that we've read here in Nehemiah's, I just want to confess, so much greater and so much grander than I've been able to convey this morning. But I pray that through the Holy Spirit that you would take the Word of God and pierce it upon each one of our hearts. Help us to see how beautiful the grace of God is in this story. How awful, how debilitating, how, how great the sin was of the people. And cr- contrasted against the, th- that, how wonderful and how beautiful the grace of God was. The love and the forgiveness that was bestowed upon them. This morning, we all have baggage. God, some may be anxious over family situations, financial situations, employment situations. Some this morning, as a follower of Jesus, may have walked into this worship center and this week has been nothing but sin. Sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful words, fights, feuds, you name it. For others, this this week has, has been religious. It's been going through motions. It's been trying hard, but it's not been anything about relying upon the goodness of God and the power of God in our lives. Some sitting here this morning may be absolutely outside of a relationship with you. Never have confessed their sin, trusted you for forgiveness. Today they're headed to a devil's hell. It doesn't matter what our situation is this morning. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever would look to you, whoever would believe in you, could have everlasting life. The Bible tells us that our sins can be removed as far as the east is from the west, and it's all from our confession and trust and belief in you. So Lord God, I pray for the lost person who's outside of a relationship that today they would come owning their sin, standing on your mercy, resting in your grace, calling upon you for salvation. God, I pray for the believer this morning those walking at a guilty distance, those who are trying to walk uh, close and clean with you. Lord, we would all stand and rest in the goodness of God. Help us to remember you, Father. May we not be a forgetful people because it leads to our estrangement. God, help us to be a people who remember because in remembrance there is relationship. Lord, as we move into a time of response, Take your word and sear it upon our hearts that we might remember. We love you, Father. We thank you that you are a good God. Gracious, compassionate, patient, and long-suffering, and ever calling us to yourself. So, Lord, may we heed the call, and may we come before you, broken and humble like these people that we've read about. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Won't you stand to your feet this morning?